it. But these three spiritual exercises, we kind of went through how they attack all the, the, the deadly sins and how they promote all the cardinal virtues in the spiritual life. But they also, each one in kind of their own unique way, are in encounter with Jesus Christ. You know, in terms of prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. You know, you know when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we, we can pray that because we're in union with Him. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, we're praying His words in union with Him. We've joined ourselves to the One who never stops praying. You know, uh, the Scripture says that Jesus Christ makes intercession for us continually before the throne of God. So we pray in Jesus' name, that is, in, in, in a, not, not just the Word, but I'm talking here about we pray in union with Christ, in union with His glorified human nature, to God the Father in the Holy Spirit. All right? So, so prayer is, in and of itself, when we pray, it's an encounter with Jesus, not only in terms of our relationship, but He's also the object of many of our prayers. But also in terms of almsgiving, which is this is where we're going to be tomorrow, so Father will elaborate on this, but it's the Sunday of the Last Judgment. And Jesus said, if you've done it unto one of the least of me, my brethren, you've done it unto me. If you, if you, you, know, if you, if you give the thirsty man drink, if you give a hungry man food, if you clothe the naked, if you, if you comfort the sick, if you visit the imprisoned, all those are an encounter with Jesus Christ, because He says it is, but, but it, it not only that, as I said last night, it becomes an encounter with yourself, you know, and, and all that He has done for you to satisfy you, to clothe you. And I'm not talking about temporal things. I'm talking about the garment of salvation. I went through that. He's fed us with His body and blood, all these things. So, so when we do these things, it's not just an exercise for, uh, for climbing the ladder. It's a, it's a kind of joining ourselves to Christ, and also even with the fasting, and um, you know, back I, I was really blessed in my life that you know, if you've ever read Father Peter's book, Becoming Orthodox, you know, he tells the story about that meeting in 1986 where you know Metropolitan Phillips said, "Welcome home." Well, I was there. I went with Father Gordon, and there was a lot of little side things going on. And one of the little side things going on was there was a the Bishop of Baghdad was there. The Bishop Constantine, the Antiochian Bishop of Baghdad, long before 9-11 and a lot of the hardships and trials that we see now. But he, he shared, he, Mitch Pontfilm asked him to, you know, share a word with the brethren, and he got up and talked about fasting. And it was, it was just, it was kind of amazing, but he, he, he talked about, and some of the other fathers, I know Jerome talks about this, Ambrose, that all Scripture needs to be looked at on three levels sort of a literal level, and then a kind of a didactic or teaching level, a moral level, some might use it word, and then an allegorical level. And what he said, in terms of the fast, on the literal level, it's just quite simply denying yourself. <laughs> you know, just, just to discipline yourself, deny yourself, keep the fast as a, as a discipline. But he said on a moral level, the things that we fast from are the revelation of Jesus and induce a desire in us for Him. So he said, meat and poultry, these are bloody animals that were used in the sacrifices of Israel, and they pointed to Jesus. And dairy is the offspring of those bloody animals, and they in their own way point to Jesus. And fish with a backbone is also a bloodied animal, even though it's allowed sometimes because it's kind of a symbol of Jesus. It's mostly denied because of its connection to Jesus. And of course, you all know in the Greek, ichthys, you know, uh, it's, uh, what is it? It's Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. All right, it's like an acronym, Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. So that's, that's why we'll partake of it some, but it's definitely an image of Christ. And wine, of course, the pointed to the blood of Christ and oil. If you think about the oil of gladness in baptism and how a, a baby or in, is, is just covered in it, particularly in the Greek church, they just slather them all up with this oil of gladness right before they're baptized, separate from, from chrismation. 
But we anoint with this oil of gladness and it, it represents the reconstitution of man. The human race was reconstituted in Noah in as much as he was delivered from the ark. And the first sign that came was the dove carrying an olive branch. So the, the oil of gladness is that sign that this person about to be baptized is about to be remade. But, but it, it, and, and what are we remade into? We're remade into that we're, we're transferred from the lineage of Adam to the lineage of Christ. We become, we're going to become a new man. So the, on the moral level, it's what are we fasting from? I want you to think about this. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And you think, think we, 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 we partake of this to the point we become satiated on a temporal level. But when we deny ourselves, and when we feel that hunger, and when we feel that longing for meat, for dairy, for vit, you know, when we're at the Pascha liturgy and we're in the liturgy and we're getting ready to take communion and we can smell the lamb roasting in the hall. You know, and we long, we yearn for it. Well, this whole fast is designed to make you yearn not for the temporal food, not for the temporal meat, but for the meat that's life-giving, the body and blood of Christ, the flesh of Christ. You, do you see that? It's, th there's, it's, it's why it's really important for you not to decide you're going to fast from cake this Pascha. You know what I'm saying? You, the, these things mean something. And what they mean, then they are, they are arrows pointing us directly to Jesus. But then he, Bishop Constantine said, so there's the literal self-denial, the didactic, all these things just to get our attention away from these earthly satisfying things to the one who only satisfies Jesus Christ. And the allegorical level, we return to eating like Adam did in the paradise. He was, you know, they, they weren't slaughtering animals in paradise. That didn't happen until he got kicked out and God made a sacrifice and made for him garments for Adam and Eve. And we try to eat like Adam did, denying ourselves of these things. And you know what we discovered? We discovered we're not any better than he is. <laughs> you know, so it, on an allegorical level, it reveals something about ourself. You know, in our own condition, and our own inability to choose wisely, to choose rightly. So, you know, f fasting, that exercise, all, all, none of these exercises are designed just to get you in shape. They're designed to get you in more deeply connected to Christ. That's the truth of it. So prayer, fasting, almsgiving, very important. You know, one thing I wanted to say, I didn't, didn't mention, you know, like when I was telling you about my dad and he said, boom. The, the boom was, he did step on a landmine three day, four days after the invasion. He got sent by, a, I mean, he was a combat engineer. But then they, and the combat engineers that went in on Omaha Beach had a saying, all combat, no engineering. <laughs> and he was walking towards some city. Everybody was disconnected from their units. And he said a major grabbed him and said, said, son, do you know how to shoot that gun? <laughs> and he said, yes. And he said, well, I want you to take these 40 guys with me and go back to the Omaha Beach because there's snipers shooting at our guys. And we've got it. We're sending waves of men back to ferret out snipers. So the first pop, pop, pop that he heard, he said, well, if you're a second lieutenant, and you're 21 years old, think about it, and you've got 40 guys under your command. He said, the first time you encounter something like this is, again, kind of military practice. You, you go in. You've got to show the other guys that you're the man. But, you know, Jesus showed us that he's the man. He showed us he was the man, the firstborn of all creation. So he went in and took about 25 paces towards where they were hearing this sound. He stepped on a landmine. And then the medic and three other guys followed his tracks, got him on a stretcher, started on their way back. And one of them stepped on a landmine. And that, the first one was, was my dad said, was probably a bouncing Betty because it, it blew up his foot, but it shot up something out of the ground that blew up his right arm. And the second one was probably what's called a shoe mine. 
because it would spray it across the ground to take you out and everybody with you at the knees. And, and that blew both of his legs up. And he survived. He said three of the guys, he, the way he described it is this. He said they, they went down on their knees and their head fell toward just like a prostration. <laughs> they went down on their knees and their heads hit the ground. They were dead instantly. And the medic was had a, had a shrapnel cutting from his chin up to over his ear. Just his face split, but he was okay. So the medic laid there with my dad. And my dad said, I remember both blasts. And then I remember nothing till I came up in like a mash unit on the beach till I woke up. But it, it, it did change his life in so many ways. You know, he, uh, you know, one way was his attitude towards people of color. <laughs> I'm way off the reservation here now, but it's a great story, isn't it? Um, but uh, the, the, uh, I want to tell you this because, you know, it comes to mind, so maybe it's important. You know, uh, he, he would have a joint service twice a year with the, with the, the uh, East Star Baptist Church in McAllister, Oklahoma. It's an all-black church. When Martin Luther King died, they had this big event at the church and there were about 400 blacks in the church and about a thousand outside of the church with speakers and my dad and my older brother were the only white people in the room because all the african-american community in McAllister, oklahoma loved mr oj and that was my dad and there when he when they would come to our church there was a lot of parishioners wouldn't show up and they, there was little back, you know, talk in the background, you know, why does he do this, you know. And my brother, Father John Finley, asked him once, Dad, why, why did you do this? Why did you? He, said, he said, hundreds and hundreds of men, my brothers, gave their lives fighting the most racist regime that ever walked the face of the earth. There was no way I was going to come back here and be like I was. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? No way I'm going to come back here and be like I was. So anyway, you know, my dad had a big impact on my life. And by virtue of that, my brother's life, my son's life, my grandchildren's life, it, you know, he took, took something terrible and, and turned it into something good as best he could. I'll tell you one more thing, and then I promise I'll stop talking about my dad, and then we'll just have to race to the finish line. When, you know, most of you all know that I, I went through a divorce, many of you know, a few years ago, and when, when, and there was part of the time my kids lived with me in Nashville. I went back to Nashville, and they were with me all summer, and always Holy Week and Pascha, and so we're able to really work on cultivating that spiritual relationship and their relationship with me, but at near the end of my dad's life, right before he had a massive stroke, my kids had all come to town for the summer. And he called me up on Saturday night and he said, he said, he called me Howard by my first name. He said, Howard, your mother and I would like to go to church with you and the kids tomorrow. And I was a little bit floored because we had a great relationship, but he wasn't in love with the Orthodox Church. And I, I said, I said, really? I said, I'd love for you to go. I mean, what, you know, is it because the kids are here? And he said, well, yeah. He said, you know, Mary Evelyn, Joel, and Julianne are here. And we, your mother and I want to show, we want as a family to show a unity of faith. And we want to be, we want to pray together with you at your church. So he went. And he went about six times over that summer, him and my mother. And he actually met another D-Day veteran there. Uh, who was at the parish in Nashville. And they left for the fall, and I went over one day to eat with my mom and dad. And my dad and I were always big discussion, politics, religion, the Bible, you know. He was very quiet. And I said, Daddy, all right, you're, you're really quiet here. He said, well, there's something I've been wanting to tell you, but I didn't know. I was just looking for a chance to tell you. And I'm going to get emotional here, but I'll do my... I want to stop the recording there, but well, it's okay. He said, you know, I've been to your church about six times, and I know why you became Orthodox now. I said, really, why do you think I became Orthodox? He said, because your church believes that God is holy and still holds him in awe. 
I said, you know, if I would spent my whole life trying to explain what I did in one sentence, I couldn't have done better than that. He said, I can't find it anywhere because the Baptist church changed on him. And, of course, we don't change very much, <laughs> do we? And he, he, he um, I said, who do you think taught me to believe that God was holy and hold him in awe? And he said, I did. And, you know, see, you know, I'm not God to judge. But that moment for me was like, like Moses on the mountain. That although he didn't get to go into the Holy Land, God let him see it. And when my dad, he spent all of his life praying three times on his busted up knees from the war, stepped into the Orthodox Church because of the manner of his living, because of his holy life, because of his goodness, God let him see it for what it was. A place that's holy and still holds God in awe. And right after that, he had a massive stroke. And that was pretty much the end. But it, it meant a lot to me, as you can imagine. All right, so now that was my interlude from lunch <laughs> to the videos. To uh, This is a retreat, right? So we can, uh, we can let the spirit move here a little bit. So let's, I'm going to show you the last video. And, you know, th th this one needs a little editing, and there's a typo in it. But uh, this one means a particular lot to me, because there's one old African-American monk in this that, I, that was at St. Herman's. He, it started as a monastery 40 years ago. Had to disband as a monastery in 2011. This monk stayed on. He came from holiness, homelessness. He came from horrific abuse by stepfather. He's died since I got there. He was 95 years old. Named Father Ephraim. George. And still today, people in the streets will come and ask me if Father Happy's still around. Because if you ask him, you know, how are you doing, Father Happy? He said, I'm happy in the Lord. I'm happy in the Lord. He was always at the prayer. He had blessed, when I first got there, he blessed the food at every meal. He'd, we'd have to practically carry him out, stand him up. He'd say the Lord's Prayer. And then we'd take him back and set him down. But this was sort of a 40th anniversary kind of thing we did where we talked about the history. So, Father. All right, so we'll, we'll press on. But that, that gives you a little bit of the, the flavor of the place. It was very much informed by that monastic community that began St. Herman's. <clears throat> In this next section, you know, we've, we've had the Beatitudes, which is the plan, the program, the steps, and then we come to that section where he talks about our attitude that we have to do these things from the heart, not externally. We have, to, we have to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And then he says, and we have to stay in shape, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And it's, it's almost that, that if, if, let's say a person says, okay, I'm going to climb the ladder, I'm going to have the right attitude, I'm going to do the spiritual disciplines, you know what might happen? Things might not go that well. <laughs> He's like, Lord, I'm trying to do all this and I still can't pay those bills and I'm still having a hard time and I'm still struggling. I'm still, and, and we worry. We worry. And, and worry will defeat you in the journey. So in this part of our series, we're talking about trusting Christ to survive the climb, which would be the fourth section. This is the part of that sermon when Jesus asks you not to worry as you climb the staircase, not to be anxious as you take the journey, not to fear as you follow Him. Jesus is both at the end of the journey and He is there with you along the way. He is the prize at the end of the race and He is running with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who both draws us to Christ and makes Him present along the way, in the midst of our struggles. You know, when we start worrying, 
we, we start wondering where God is. You know, one, one time in my life, I, uh, I remember I was going through a lot, and I was calling Father Nicholas Spire, the priest at uh, St. Athanasius in Santa Barbara, and uh, Antiochian Parish. Many of you know him. And then one day I was particularly low, and, and he was just listening, 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 listening. And finally, I said, are you there, Father Nicholas? <laughs> and he said, are you wondering where God is? And I said, yes. It's like he's gone. And he said, well, all of us have these moments. You know, my dad once told me all of us have our D-Day. <laughs> all of us have have this place where we hit the wall he said you know when we get in this moment it's like well is God up there is God way to the left or to the right or way behind where is he and I said well where is he Father Nicholas and he said he's right in the middle of it with you that's where he is he's with you in you he's there you have to believe it it's easy to say it's hard to do <laughs> but it is the truth one of the biggest problems you're going to have getting defeated in choosing to live the Christian life in the context of our beautiful Orthodox faith is when you let worry defeat you. And Jesus devotes a lot of his sermon to that subject in this section. Worry, anxiety, fear, these are mostly thoughts that plague us and are sent to us via our own vain imaginings and our adversary, the devil. We sing every Sunday that we're to lay aside all earthly cares. You know, we sing that after the first part. We're given the program. We're given what we have to do. We hear the epistle. We hear the gospel. We hear the sermon. And, it's, and you know, we're, we're struggling in our life. And then one of the next principal things we hear, lay aside all, uh, give it up. Because there's a power that's with you it's going to help you to do God's will. <clears throat> you know, most of what we worry about never happens. You know, Calvin Coolidge, one of his famous things that he would say from time to time, if you see ten worries coming down the road at you, nine of them will be in the ditch before they get there. <laughs> most of what we worry about really doesn't happen. We spend a great deal of time worrying about lots of things. St. John of the Latter spoke on fear and anxiety. He said before the, ad and so in, in this little commentary I was reading, before the advent of modern scientific psychological research, it appears St. John of the Latter well understood what we call today worry and anxiety. In his latter divine ascent, St. John writes, Fear is danger tasted in advance. Worry is a trouble that hasn't even arrived yet, you might say. A quiver as the heat takes flight from flight from an unnamed calamity. You know, you're so fearful and you're worried and you grow cold. That's the heat takes flight. Fear is a loss of assurance. Worry is the loss of assurance. St. Maximus the Confessor also possessed an understanding of fear and worry and anxiety. He tells us that an evil which is expected in the future is called fear or worry. And once experienced in the present, it's called distress. A contemplative one striving to be a holy Christian remains dispassionate in the face of such evils since he has united himself with God and is detached from what is happening in this present life. You see, the, the Sermon on the Mount is asking you to detach from that, detach from that worry, let go of that worry, and get back on the staircase. Keep going. Watch your attitude. Exercise. If it's not working, don't quit. Don't give up. Continuing in the scripture, Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, 
for neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, Jesus isn't saying there's no trouble in this life, but, but if you stay on the track, you're not going to have to worry about what's coming your way in the age to come. That much you can be certain about. Continuing on in the scripture, the lamp of the body is the eye. If before your eye is good, your whole body, if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light is in, that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. <laughs> we'll just stay right there. And I'm going to comment on what I have on the screen in just a minute. You know, this thing, if, you're, if your eye's good, it's, your path is lit. But if it's not, all you see is dark. In the context of where this falls, I think what he's saying is, is if, is if, if you're worrying about everything, you're not going to see God in anything. If you worry about everything, you will end up believing that God can't do anything. And you're, there's something wrong with your vision when you do that. You're not seeing God in the midst of your trouble. You're not calling on the name of the Lord in the midst of your trouble. And so you begin, your faith begins to wane. You start to wonder. And then worry can become a very present distress. Blessed are the pure in heart, remember, for they shall see God. The person that overcomes worry can see God in the midst of trial. If trouble is your reality, if worry is your reality, if fear is your reality, and you have no hope in God, as the Scripture says, how great is that darkness? That's, that's a terrible place to be. It's a terrible place to live, and it's a great adversary to the Christian life. Jesus said, as you know, I am the light of the world. You have to trust God even when it seems like the eight steps aren't working and the spiritual exercises aren't producing anything in your life. You know, there's that little book, I think it's called The Faith We Hold. I can't remember who wrote that, Archbishop Paul of Finland maybe. And uh, I think there's one place in there he says that often when a person starts to pray, God will answer his prayers in real obvious ways. And then he'll leave you <laughs> for a long time to test and to strengthen your faith. To keep going, keep climbing, keep doing, keep living it even when it might seem like things aren't going so well, maybe even we're having doubts about God and about our faith, we, that's when we really have to take hold of ourselves and keep going. Going on in chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You must trust Christ even when it seems like things aren't working. Like this PowerPoint <laughs> that you see before you that I'm once again a little uncertain about. So, you know, you can't serve God and mammon. You know, mammon is both riches and the demons of riches. The, the fathers talk about it both ways. And his weapon is covetousness and worry. St. Gregory Nisa also asserted that mammon was another name for Beelzebub. In the 4th century, St. Cyprian and Jerome relate mammon to greed and grieve as an evil master than enslaves because you're never going to get enough. <laughs> You're never going to get all that you want. You know, it's a principle in economics, the insatiability of wants. That's what drives our culture. And John Chrysostom even personifies mammon and greed in his writings. And you know, so, so greed really contributes to that, that worry 
Almsgiving, remember, is one of the weapons against greed. So continuing on, and this is where he really gets to the part about not worrying. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, no, not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Don't forget who you are. Are you of not much more? You are much more value. You're the highest. Human beings are the highest of all creation. We're made of both. St. John of Damascus says that, that human beings are the highest of all creation because we are made of both the visible and the invisible realm. We are visible in, them, in as much as he took us from the dust of the earth and made a body and we are invisible like the angels in much as he breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. We're the pinnacle of everything made in the invisible realm and the pinnacle of everything made in this realm. Great value. Are you not of more value than they? So why do you not worry about why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You know, it's, it, you know God does know we need things to, to get on in this material world. But, but no amount of wor worrying is going to allow you to acquire it. It will only turn you away from the path. And the path will actually help you to supply your needs if you live according to God's will. Seek first the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Go back to that. Seek that. Do that. That's how you address worry. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus had a lot of good advice <laughs> for us, did it? Didn't he? But it's all in the context of a sermon that's all about the Christian life. God knows all these things. God knows what you need, but you need the program. You need to stay on the path. You need to stay on the stairway. You need to live your life in the kingdom. You need to partake of His power. You need the eight steps more than you need material things. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same. They are, as you know, the reward for the first step, the eight steps, and all the steps in between. All right. So now we're, we're we, we've caught up with the PowerPoint. It's a miracle, Father. <laughs> I didn't have many slides on that section, so that's why I was confused. So this last section is is really kind of the conclusion, and really it's the whole of chapter seven. And if you look at this section, the fact of the matter is it's really out laying, laying out all the traps and all the pitfalls and all the snares that you can fall into if you're really committed to doing what Jesus is teaching here. And again, just to kind of look at the scope of this, here's the steps, here's the program, here's the attitude. Righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisee. You can't do this hypocritically. Here's the way you stay in shape. If you're trying to do it and it's not working, don't worry. 
And if you've overcoming worry and you're back on track and you're making some progress, probably the first thing that could happen to you is you're going to sit there thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I mean, I'm making some progress. I'm overcoming. But, but look at that guy over there. He is, he is, he's nowhere with this. Which why chapter 7, he goes through all that worry and then he says, judge not. Judge not that you be not judged. And that is the first trap. So avoiding the pitfalls and the highway to heaven, the seven spiritual traps. And I was talking, I, is Sean still here from, from almost Missouri? <laughs> he asked me if, I, if there was anything, you know, uh, about that number eight in the eight steps. Well, you know, I'm real fascinated by numbers, and personally, yes, I kind of think there is. But I also think, it's, in looking at chapter 7, you could probably n number it different ways, but I, when I numbered it, I came up with seven traps. And isn't it interesting that he gives us eight steps to overcome the seven traps? You know, eight, the eighth day, eternity, resurrection. He gives us more than everything we need to overcome whatever it is. That, that's true, even if the number part isn't quite true. He always gives us everything we need and then some. So this is really... The last section, the part five. And I'll begin this way. The journey to the kingdom of heaven is filled with traps along the way. The journey to the kingdom of heaven is filled with traps along the way. You have to know what they are. And I've identified, as I said, at least seven in chapter 7. We must be mindful that anyone who chooses to live a truly Christian life will encounter obstacles, traps that are designed not just to cause, uh, that are designed to cause us to stumble. We need to look no further than ourselves in order to recognize many of these snares, not to mention others who would lead us astray. We have to be mindful. We, there has to be a mindfulness about what can trip us up. And he, he gives it to us in the sermon. You know, have any of you ever heard of this little movement called mindfulness? If you know, you know look, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm not saying it's all bad. There's a kind of a living in the present, living in, in the moment. I mean, there is a sort of, you know, not... Sort of, you know, it's you know we're just bombarded with thoughts about everything, but you know without God, that kind of mindfulness can be nothing different from the old mindlessness. <laughs> because you know what, the only way you're really going to live in the presence is to live in union with Christ. The only way you're really going to survive in the present is to be mindful of how He wants us to live, what our attitude should be how we need to prepare for it, not to worry, and what can get us in trouble. The first trap on the stairway to heaven is judging others. So let me read from the scripture where he begins, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. I'm, you know you what? I'm sure glad that, not, that neither I or none of you are going to be the judge in the last day. Because you know what? We wouldn't be fair. We'd either be too merciful or too righteous, too, too much justice and not enough mercy. God's going to do it perfectly because He's the knower of hearts. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, that's that hyperbole again, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. Jesus, Jesus was, he, Father Jack Sparks used to say, Jesus was always good, but he was almost never nice. <laughs> he was always good. Hypocrite. He calls it what it is, doesn't he? First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Progress can be a pitfall. 
you know, the, you know, achieving to some spiritual heights, the, the, the message that's going to come to you from the evil one is a pat on the back. Be careful, because that's when you start to look around, take your eyes off Christ, and judge others. The second trap on the highway to heaven is failure to turn away from the opponents of Christ and those who are incapable of receiving His message. Jesus says in the seventh chapter, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. Now, you know, we, we've made a lot of applications to this, which, you know, anything Jesus said can have multiple applications if those are good. And, you know, we think of it like not giving the, the Eucharist to people that are not Orthodox or maybe people that should not be receiving it. We you know with that, don't throw your pearls before swine. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think a lot of what he's saying is, you know, don't take upon yourself to be the great, you know, defender of the faith, dialogue with everybody, arguing with everybody, trying to talk, you know, people into things that are really the appoint, you know, the opponents of Christ who don't really have any interest in listening to you and may actually pull you down into the pit with themselves. We have to know where we're at on the journey. Maybe we're not quite at that level to be in that kind of dialogue, in that kind of engagement. You know, dogs and swine aren't just heathen in this passage, and the Jews are not excluded. The fathers say that dogs are those deeply immersed in godlessness, that they show no hope of change. Don't give what is holy to dogs. Dogs... It says are those deeply immersed in, in godlessness that show no hope of change, while swine are those who habitually live an unchaste and immoral life. <laughs> Have you ever been around a place where they're raising hogs? Anybody ever? It's not a pretty picture, is it? It's not, it's not wrapped as neatly as it is at Kroger. <laughs> but, you know, it's, he's using this analogy, casting your pearls before swine. All right, so the third trap is a lack of persistence, a lack of resolve, a lack of faith. Here again the words of Jesus, the third trap. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So don't judge. Don't be taking on the opponents of Christ when you're not ready to do it and they're not ready to hear it. And don't quit. Don't give up. Persevere, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep praying. Everyone who asks receives, Jesus said. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. All right, the fourth trap on the highway to heaven is the failure to treat others in the manner that you want to be treated, or a failure to follow the golden rule. Jesus says, therefore, Whatever men do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's quite a summation, isn't it? <laughs> this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. you know, the golden world's a beautiful thing to memorize. Everybody knows it. People know it in the culture. All good. But you've got to understand that, that it's not just a nice little proverb. It comes in the context of a sermon and it comes in a section where he's telling you if you don't do it, you're coming off the stairway. <laughs> you're going to stumble. To, to, to reject it is a path of destruction. It's a trap. 
It's a trap. The fifth trap on the stairway to heaven is succumbing to the temptation to find an easier way. Father, could we modify the fast this year? <laughs> Just a little. You know what? There's a lot of churches there you could go and it'd be easier. The exercise regime would be a lot less stringent. Hear the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, the easy way. And there are many who, are go, in, who go in it because narrow is the gate and get, difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's a little frightening. <laughs> but, but when he says broad is the way he's talking about the easy way the other way not his way and when he says narrow is the way he's talking about his way the beatitudes the sermon on the mount what he's laid out for his apostles to both do and to teach and to deliver unchanged from generation to generation the sixth trap on the highway to heaven is the temptation to abandon the teachings of Jesus, to abandon the eight steps of the Beatitudes, and follow after false teachers who offer a better way. It's, it's similar to the last one. I think a lot of times, you know, the last one might be best in our own context. You know, we want an easier way. We want an excuse for an easier way. Father, weren't all these fasting rules designed for monastics? I mean... We're not, we don't have to do all that, do we? Couldn't you give us an easier way? <laughs> you know, look, the church, one of the things I love about the church is it set the bar high. You know what? If you set the bar to the lowest common denominator, you've just deprived so much people and so many people with so many possibilities of where they can go spiritually. But it, it sets the bar high for all and shows mercy to all at the same time and realizes that it's a journey. I'm not advocating that, that, that for some kind of hyper-strictness here, you know? I mean, but, but I, am, I would advocate for this, get some spiritual guidance. You know, maybe, maybe you started out good and you hadn't really, not, if you're really honest, you hadn't really kept the fast very good for 10 years. Go to your spiritual father, go to father. What should I do? He, he's probably not going to say, eat one meal a day and follow it strictly. And He's probably not. He's going to say, well, why don't you pick back up with meat, <laughs> you know? And then next year do more. And then next year do more. And then next year do more. And if he's a good priest, and I think he is, he might remind you that it's really even more than that. There's a beautiful quote from Chrysostom. Somebody, some of you probably read it. He says, when you fast, don't just fast from food but fast with your eyes, being careful what you look at. And fast with your mouth, being careful what you say. And fast with your ears, being careful what you listen to. And fast with your hands, being careful what you do. And fast with your feet, being careful where you go. It's all that. But you won't do any of that, probably, if you don't first begin to some way just get your eating under control a little bit. And it's not about dieting. It's about Jesus. Remember, that's what we started with. All those things in the fast that we fast from create a yearning for Christ himself, who is our true meat. He's the true flesh that we eat. So we're on the sixth trap. Beware of false prophets. That's abandoning and going somewhere else who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits... You shall know them. And you know that we have, we're so blessed to be in the Holy Church. 
where we have good teachers and a good tradition and a good understanding of the, of the Scriptures. And we have the Holy Fathers. We have so much. And you're blessed to be in this parish. Look, you know, well, I'm, can you turn that off for a second? Beware of false prophets. It, it, it doesn't produce good fruit. Is it still off? A seventh trap on the highway to heaven. He goes back to hypocrisy. <laughs> you know, that was the whole section after the eight steps. But it, it, it's always there, and it's the last one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my fathers. Did you turn it back on? I did. Wait, you are good, Ethan. <laughs> you know, you might have a future in soundboard technology. <laughs> All right. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Blessed are those who both do and teach, not just teach. But he who does the will of my Father, that's the one that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, that's sort of a fascinating scripture. You think it's... You know, you know, I've wondered about, well, God, if a guy's casting out demons and prophesying, and he's, particularly if he's in the context of our faith, he must be doing something right. But you know, it, it, it could very well be that he's not doing something right. It's the person that he's working with who has real faith. <laughs> and the person that's administering may not really be quite in the right. God, God can do great things through weak clergy, weak bishops, but if the people have faith and believe, you see what I mean? And do the right thing. How do you avoid these seven traps? You have to work the program. You know, I think they say that, you know, you work the program because the program works. There's something they say at the end of AA meetings a lot, and they'll hold hands and do this. If you've ever been to one, you may know what I'm talking about. And it, it kind of seems probably seems silly to some of us. And I know some people are negative about AA, and look, I know they don't know. When they talk about a higher power, it's very nondescript. But, but you, know, you know, sometimes godly principles work to a point. They work to a point for anybody. You know, you know Mormons tithe, and it works to a point. Look at how they've grown. Look at their buildings. Look at their structure. It works to a point, but there's still the falsehood <laughs> that's, that's very false. So, so the fact of the matter is, though, we're not talking about AA and we're not talking about anything else. We're talking about Jesus, His Beatitudes, His stairway to heaven, His steps. If you work that program with a pure heart, stay in shape, don't worry, avoid the traps, it will work. It will work. And the other element is you've got to have His power, and He'll give that to you too. <laughs> and He'll forgive you when you fail if you come to Him with genuine, genuine repentance. The journey to the kingdom of heaven is filled with traps along the way. Well, the last section, which again, I see the Beatitudes is kind of an introduction where He lays out the steps. From, from the, the attitude, the exercises, the worry, the trap. This, this is the body where he's telling you how to do it. And then he has a conclusion. And it's, there's sort of a double meaning with it. Because he's going to talk about a rock, and he's the rock, right? When he asked the apostles, who do men say that I am? You know, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, come back to Dan. He said, well, yeah, I'm, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus changed his name and said, upon this rock I will build my church. The, the, the rock is Christ, the Son of the living God. But 
it's not just that. <laughs> it's also his teaching. And here it's kind of both, but arguably even more, his teaching that he's talking about. So listen to the last part. Chapter 7, verse 29, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, you know, it's almost like in conclusion, <laughs> whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, remember I'm not teaching, I'm preaching. Are you going to do it? Are you going to try? Are you going to keep that little sheet in front of your altar? Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock is his teaching, and the rock is Christ himself. That's where you've got to build your house. That's where you've got to live. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. You know, when I was a kid in the Baptist church, we used to sing a little song, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Da -da -da. I mean, nice song, glad I learned it, taught me a little part. But you know, I, ne I never till recently saw it as, it's all tied to this sermon. But everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them, in other words, your righteousness isn't exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisee. You're just going through the motion. And you know it all, but you don't do it all, or any of it maybe. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on this house and it fell and great was its fall. Period. End of sermon. And then the last verse, 28, 29, And so it was, and this isn't part of the sermon, it's the conclusion of chapter 7. And so it was when Jesus had ended this sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. They were, they were amazed. You know, they had never heard living for God in this way, in this depth, in this manner. They probably thought if they went through the motions, that might be good enough to some degree. Although there were those that were looking for the truth, seeking the truth, looking for the Messiah, seeking the Messiah, among them the twelve apostles, and they were amazed at His teaching, astonished. They believed it as best they could at this moment in their journey. And so it was when Jesus ended these things that the people were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And guess what? He did have the authority. He did have the authority. He gave the law to Moses. He gave the Beatitudes to us. And He gave Himself for the salvation of the human race. As we conclude, I want to exhort you to be a student of the Scripture. Read it. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't even have to understand it all, but you do need to read it, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to read it this Lent. <laughs> One of the great saints of our modern era, a Serbian saint who spent his whole life in monastic and academic struggle in an age of great turmoil, this Saint Justin Popovich, is a Serbian saint, kind of during the communism, Second World War, he said the main thing is to read the Bible as much as possible. Now look, he's not a Protestant. <laughs> it's an Orthodox saint who, who prayed, fasted, gave alms, took, went to liturgies, took communion, lived a sacramental life, but, but, but he didn't see it as replacing reading the Scripture. The main thing is to read the Bible as much as possible. You know, our Archdiocese gives us what to read every day. 
When the mind does not understand, the heart will feel. And if neither the mind understands nor the heart feels, read it over again. Because by reading it, you are sowing God's Word in your soul. And there they, that is the Word, will not perish, but will gradually and imperceptibly pass into the nature of your soul. And there will happen to you what the Savior said about the man who casts seed on the ground and sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows while the man does not know it. That's from the Gospel of Mark. The main thing is, so, and it is God who causes and allows what is sown to grow. So read the scriptures, pray, read the Sermon on the Mount, read those Beatitudes, participate in the life of your church. It's a good time to start. You know, the, uh, you know in the OCA, the kind of the Slavic lectionary, the last Sunday before the Triodian begins is always Zacchaeus. Sometimes it's a little different. Uh, was it different this year, or did, what did Zacchaeus proceed? It did. I was thinking, sometimes it hits the same. And Chris, the last, they've, they've kind of set it up that way, so the, the, the last scripture in the, in the lectionary is an appeal to your desire to see God. <laughs> I mean, you're all probably familiar with this, but, then, but that's not enough. <laughs> you, know, you know, when we look at the scriptures, it's almost always more. So if you, if you want to see him, you have to approach him with humility, the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee. And, and, if, you, and if you approach him with humility, you have to do something. The prodigal son, you've got to get up and go. You've got to go home. And if, if you're not motivated by desire and by humility and by action, which are those three Sundays, the church places tomorrow right before your eyes. Are you motivated by, as we like to say in the Baptist church, hellfire and damnation? Because this, look, forgive me, brothers and sisters, this is hellfire and damnation Sunday. That's what tomorrow is. We don't harp on it all year long, but we know it's there. We know it's there. It's a call. To, you know, look, if you don't desire God, you don't have humility, you don't want to pursue Him, you don't want to work the eight steps. You know, there's consequences, grave consequences, not only in this life, but in the age to come. That's the truth, brothers and sisters. It's as true as I'm standing here. I'm telling you it's true. And, you know, sometimes, and forgive me if I'm wrong, sometimes we diminish it just a little bit in our church. You know, of course, it's the story of the judgment and the sheep and the goats and doesn't talk a lot about hellfire, although it does talk about eternal punishment. But, you know, we can read in the Fathers that, that where we, we, it describes hell as, I don't normally end this way, by the way, but I'm doing it because it's Meat Fair weekend. I'm going to enjoy some meat tonight and hopefully I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning when, at the liturgy. <laughs> A lot of times they describe hell as not, not as this place of burning, you know, but, but it's being in the, the eternal light of God and finding it unbearable. You've, have you heard this? I mean, you've all heard this. All right, so, and I, when, when I read that in the Fathers, I don't doubt it. I like it. It's like it, when, when the light of God hit Peter, James, and John, they said, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. And when Paul got hit with the same light, he heard a voice that said, why are you persecuting me? And it blinded him. It knocked him to his knee, knocked him off his horse. So the light has a different impact on us depending on where we are. So it's true. But in the modern age, in this age, I get a little concerned sometimes because it's often presented this way, and I've heard it done at church camps by clergies that were leading sessions. They'll say, you know, we don't believe like the Protestants do, you know, in this awful God that sends people to a burning hell of fire. You know, it's like we want to use that to distinguish ourselves as somehow we're more merciful and kind and, and that God, and God, God really, He really ain't that bad, Right? Have you, ever, have you ever heard it kind of put in that context? Anybody? I have. 
So let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. How bad is it to be in the light of God and not like it? <laughs> How bad is it to be separated from Him and at the same time standing in that light? How bad is it? Anybody want to give me an answer? How bad do you think it is? How bad is it? Jesus told us how bad it is. It's as bad as a burning hell of fire. It's torment. It's Gehenna. Being in the light of God and being separated from Him shouldn't make you comforted. <laughs> There's a value to the theology. There's a value to the understanding. There is a danger in diminishing the reality of the last judgment, our responsibility for before God, our accountability before God, the fact that He has given us the way, He has given us the power. Now we have to choose. We have to choose. We have to start. We have to continue. We have to start over wherever you're at. We have to make that move. So, I'm concluded. <laughs>